Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third season of Data Femme. I just can't believe it. It's so exciting. And I know that this season is going to be a real journey, just like season two has been. I wanted to start off season three with a very epic guest to give you a taste of where we're going with this. So I'm lucky to have Adam Wilson, the CEO of Trifacta, on the podcast today. Trifacta is also the sponsor of this season three premiere. So you'll be hearing a lot more about them throughout the episode and definitely you should check out what they've got on their websites after the show. I'm so excited to have you here on the show, Adam. It's a treat, and I can't wait to hear more about you and Trifacta. And if you want to just kind of give me a lowdown on what you do, how you came into this role, what the company does, we can start there and go from there. Thanks for having me. It's it's a real, uh, real treat to be here. And um... Uh, looking forward to uh, spending some time today. My name is Adam Wilson. I'm the CEO of Trifacta, and you know I've spent really my entire career in data integration, data transformation, data cleansing. Most notably, uh, before Trifacta, I co-founded a company a couple years out of college um, called Zimba that was doing mobile analytics back in the early days of mobile uh, when people had Palm Pilots and WAP phones and. Windows CE devices, and uh, they were looking to deliver analytic data, dashboards, and metrics um, to this explosion of form factors um, that was out there, and uh, had an opportunity to start that company with some colleagues, and ultimately sold that business to Informatica in August of 2000, right before the dot-com collapse, and went on at Informatica to head up all of the uh, business intelligence product lines at a moment in time when the company was looking to vertically integrate the BI and the data warehousing stack. And you know that really began a very long and exciting journey to explore all things data, and was there for 13 years from IPO into uh, a billion dollars in revenue. And then with Trifacta, you know, had a chance to jump out and be part of what's new and what's next in the category as the the world was shifting to cloud and as people were focused on concepts like self-service and really empowering you know people who know the data best to go in and do a lot of the complex crafting of data products on their own to me it just felt like that was really going to be the next frontier for competition in terms of how uh, organizations compete on information and i was super excited to take the helm here and work with some amazingly talented people in data integration, data transformation, and data cleansing for the modern stack. Everywhere, you know, you see the cloud, the cloud, the cloud, and a lot of people are confused. And I actually did a really, really cool episode that was more instructional on cloud computing with my friend, Chris O'Brien, who 
kind of saw that I was asking a lot of questions about it on Twitter and said, you know what, like, why don't I educate you and everybody else at the same time? And so I still feel like I'm always learning about what's going on. Our habitats are moving increasingly to the cloud, but there still yeah. are some things that aren't shifted over. I want to know how that landscape has changed for you since you started. What is different about the cloud than versus now? And you know, what, what are you working on right now? Yeah, no, it's a great, a great observation. I, I think that, you know, analytics in particular has been very stubbornly on premise for years. I mean, you saw, you know, cloud applications, obviously like Salesforce and others, Mm -hmm. Workday, NetSuite, you know, that were established 10 plus years ago that, you know, are now, you know, very much industry standards for most organizations. And and then you saw uh, DevOps that, uh, you know, shifted to the cloud, you know, as more engineering teams recognized the benefits of, of having, you know, always on infrastructure they could spin up in the click of a button. But analytics, especially for large enterprises, was was really an on-prem game, you know, up until probably a couple of years ago. I mean, you had, you know, some organizations that were experimenting and prototyping and you, you had some some use cases, especially as it related to analyzing data that was born outside of an organization's firewall. But a lot of things were still on, you know, very traditional, very legacy monolithic infrastructure. And with the advent of the cloud data warehouse and the cloud data lake and the rise of, you know, things like BigQuery, Snowflake, Databricks, you know, as uh, next generation processing uh, engines, all of a sudden now there's just this massive explosion of effort and interest and in projects that are aggressively moving to, you know, cloud to take advantage of a lot of the benefits that these architectures provide. Um, they're a lot more flexible. In many cases can be more cost effective, more eminently scalable. Um, you know, all of these things are, uh, are benefits that people are really feeling, especially as they're contending with a broader variety of data that you know is coming at them in all shapes and sizes from you know a multitude of sources that seem like are continuing to grow and grow and then you know clearly the volumes that go along with that and so i think it's been really fascinating for us anything that creates fragmentation you know or creates silos of information requires technology like trifacta to help people you know pull things together to get more holistic views you know, to get a better perspective on what's going on um, by, you know, by pulling that data together. That forces you to have to deal with the fact that there's just so much, you know, data in, you know, so many different formats of varying degrees of quality, mostly bad, and to, to really get involved in, in fixing those problems so that you can improve the velocity of, you know, building out new data products that will help you cater to long tail segments in your market, that'll help you manage and model risk better, that'll help you welcome and serve as the decoder ring for data becomes even more instrumental to everything that they're doing. I see that for sure. Do you see any patterns with your clients on who is more willing to adopt a new structure and who isn't? I'm not saying name names. That's that's sure. cool. Um, but, you know, just like kind of the types of businesses within analytics, because you said that analytics is being kind of stubborn to get there. Well, I would say at this point, you know, you're, you're, you know, we're seeing across the board industries that, you know, patently refuse to consider cloud solutions, 
now changed their mind and, and in some cases changed their mind pretty aggressively. So you had a lot of highly regulated industries that uh, swore up and down that, you know, they wouldn't do this work in the cloud um, because they were concerned about security and privacy and, you know, other uh, risk and compliance factors. But I think as the cloud technology itself has matured um, to address some of those concerns, I think also as the clouds have pointed out that their ability to invest in a lot of the uh, security, privacy, risk, and compliance solutions of the kind of market broadly far outstrips what any one organization could do on their own, you're starting to see organizations change their mind. And I think it's also in part because in some cases, the companies that were moving slower are getting lapped. They're seeing their competitors just you know go faster. I'll give you one example of that. We had a, a large financial services institution that we were working with that uses us in their global banking and markets group. And you know that's essentially their algorithmic trading team. And uh, they had about 250 quants, you know, split roughly equally between fixed income and equities. And they had 10 people that were managing the data lake. And you, know, you can imagine you know, in that environment, if you're a little faster at getting to some insight algorithmically than your, comp your competition, you don't just win a little more, you win all of it for some period of time until the rest of the market catches up. So these guys have a voracious appetite for different cuts of data, shaped and structured in different ways. This is third-party data, it's open data, it's dark data, it's government data, it's stuff coming from data brokers, it's stuff that's like littered all over their organization. Like they just wanna get, get as much of it as they can and get eyes on it and start to create training data sets that could then you know, birth algorithms and insights. And the minute they get to an aha, then they need to put that in production and trade on it. But they obviously still have to make sure that they can very clearly show chain of custody of like, well, where did that algorithm come from? You know, what was the data that was the genesis? You know, what was the training training data set to use? Where did it come from? How is it manipulated along the way? So like all that becomes really critical. Why don't we open up, you know, the, the data lake and let the, the end users go in and do a lot of this work on their own? Frankly, they're better at it anyway, because they have context in their heads. They can get eyes on the data and they can, you know, make sense of it. Um, so, you know, we're going to hand them that work and they're actually going to thank us for giving it to them which is awesome. This Data Femme episode is sponsored by Trifacta. Trifacta is the leader in cloud data engineering. With Trifacta, you can easily transform data, ensure the quality of that data, and automate data pipelines at any scale. Trifacta was founded by professors at Stanford and UC Berkeley and it leverages decades of innovative research in human-computer interaction, data management, and machine learning. With Trifacta, you will be cutting the time that you need to explore, clean, and automate your data by 90%. You can join the more than 10,000 companies, including Google, New York Life, and PepsiCo, in unlocking the potential of your data, and to do that, visit trifacta.com to start with a free 30-day trial. Now back to our show. I just had an aha moment when you were speaking. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like what you said is that hiring new employees can be replaced by the customer actually doing the work as it applies to them, which has no real cost on you. I'm a somewhat of an industrial engineer by uh, 
by trade or at least by by uh, by academic education and um, you know in studying industrial and manufacturing processes it's all about finding bottlenecks and removing bottlenecks to improve efficiency and I think there was clearly you know an kind of an impedance mismatch between the number of people out in the world that were being told be more data driven and they're like great I'm happy to be but you got to give me the data in a form that I can use it. Otherwise, what's the point? If it takes six months for you to generate a data warehouse on my behalf, then it's really hard for me to be data-driven because then I'm gonna get eyes on the data and I'm gonna be like, well, now that I see the data, it's not really what I wanted. Or now that I see the data, well, my questions have completely changed. And so that's just a recipe for slow and painful and expensive. <laughs> what really has happened, I think, is that these organizations, and frankly, the, the IT you know, function that was supporting a lot of the subject matter experts in the line of business that were doing, ultimately building out the analytics were like, listen, we don't covet this work anyway. It's not like they're sitting around going like, oh, give me more of this. I can't wait to provision these cuts of data for people and do that day in and day out and mostly frustrate people because I'm doing it wrong or too slow. So really it became this like, we've got this mismatch. There's way more knowledge workers in an organization than there are people that are structured programmers that are technically qualified to go after doing the hardcore data work. By necessity, if you believe in being more data-driven, you're gonna have to push this to the people who know the data best, and you're gonna have to empower them. And the nice part is that, again, they're gonna thank you for giving them the work. Like, they're thrilled that now I can be more self-sufficient. And because I have some sense as to what I'm going after, um, you know, I'm gonna be in a much better position as I'm interacting with the data, as I'm exploring the data to make decisions on you know, what should happen to the data. Every data set's not a new data set. Odds are somebody has seen something like it before. And you're learning from how the user interacts with the data. What is going to separate the winners from the losers in the next decade? This then opens up the possibility for more people uh, to be more self-sufficient and to get more value from the data. And it frees the IT organization up to frankly do more strategic work. Can I help crowdsource the best stuff and make sure that it's shared and reused across the organization? Can I ensure that all the scaffolding is in place to make sure that as we start really running these jobs and creating these data products that you know things scale appropriately and that they're governed appropriately so that self-service doesn't turn into chaos. Definitely, we want the projects we create to be used for good and not for ill. The other morning I woke up to this list on Twitter made by First Mark Capital that was highlighting the top companies for different sectors of the data industry. And I saw that Trifacta was listed among the best companies for data transformation, and specifically ELT and ETL. I had to look up what those are. It's extract, transform, load, but then there's one that's like extract, load, transform. I've been at this a while, and you know, the, when, I, when I worked at Informatica, Informatica was really the company that pioneered you know ETL as a concept or at least a, a very metadata driven visual way to do that so it's been now interesting to be at Trifacta and to be you know pioneering more of a self-service approach that leverages an ELT methodology uh, which is you know where we think this is headed it used to be that you'd have a variety of sources and you would extract the data from those sources you would transform it in the engine of the ETL product and then you would load it into some sort of you know data warehouse on the other side or operational data store and um, that was classically how this work was done 
And then at some point, what we started to see is that as the engines themselves inside the data warehouses became increasingly powerful and, and as the you know uh, syntax that you could throw at them became increasingly robust so that you could do more types of manipulation in the database itself or inside the data lake, you know, or the distributed compute environment itself, the idea was like, well, gee, you know, why do I want to transform it in, in the middle tier? You know, why, why can't I just like, you know, shove it in and then transform it? I can probably do that incredibly fast. You know, there are certain cases where transforming the data outside of the data warehouse or the data lake is necessary, but the majority of the cases where you can do a full, what we call push down operation, where whether you're compiling down to Spark or whether you're compiling down to SQL or to Dataflow or to Python, where you can just do more things kind of inside those, those engines and there's no need to do the transformation at the middle tier. So I think it's a cost play, it's a performance play. There's some architectural elegance that comes out of that. For us, it's a matter of not more modern paradigm, but also then combining that with the idea that you want to be able to flexibly execute and change your mind, right? So you don't want to be hardwired to any one specific cloud data warehouse or or engine. You don't want to be hardwired to any one specific storage architecture, one specific security framework, one specific cloud platform. You want to be able to find the logic for what needs to happen and to create your pipelines and to be able to do that in a way that you can change your mind. Exactly. And to change your mind at every stage, there's always going to be more decisions. And that's what I really like about how you described Trifacta as a resource and really guiding you through that process every time. Before we get to the article you wrote about COVID data collection that I've posted in the show notes for people to do some advanced reading and get read up on it before we delve in, I do want to know what your stance and trifecta stance is in terms of ethical AI. The first thing I would say is that in general, if your data quality is bad, your machine learning, your AI, your analytics are worthless. And that's like one of those things that hits you square in the face when you start really looking at like, okay, I'm gonna start automating decisions now based on algorithms. God forbid I start automating bad decisions faster based on bad data. That's a, a nightmare runaway train scenario that everyone wants to avoid. This is a moment in time where you gotta fix your data quality challenges. And you, you know you, this is not something that you can sort of leave to later um, because the odds that things can go sideways fast and, and create you know meaningful you know trauma to your organization are just too high as it starts to get automated at scale in ways that you know people hadn't dreamed of before because the infrastructure can kind of do more faster and you can have more of this stuff happening through bots and through automation. As it relates to the the ethics part and, and really bias, I think, is probably the area that we focus on more is that our fundamental belief is the more data you can bring in to the analysis, the less likely you are to have bias creep in. You know, there's still questions, obviously, about, well, how are you collecting that data? And is there inherent bias you're, inter you're introducing from the moment you start to collect information? That's an important topic worthy of debate. But in a lot of cases, what we find is that there is a lot of data out there from a diverse set of people, suppliers, sources, governments, geographies, and most organizations aren't using it. Selectively taking slices of the data that's most convenient for them to incorporate. So even if you sort of look at the world of data that they could potentially bring into an analysis, people are bringing in such a small percentage of what is available to them that 
you already have inherent bias that comes in right there at the beginning because you're ignoring a lot of what you could bring into play that might actually lead you to different conclusions. And so, I mean, this is one tiny, tiny idiosyncratic example, but we had a customer that was doing analysis and they were looking at sales data and they were in a hustle to get some analysis done for a board meeting and they had a whole bunch of date formats that didn't conform, so they just dumped or dropped a bunch of data where the date formats were a mess. They didn't want to go through and write all the little programs to you know, clean up the dates so they'd all be you know, standardized. So they get in and they present their analysis and their recommendations, and then as they looked into it further after the fact, they realized that the dates that they dumped there was all these system timestamp dates, and most of them came from other geographies like Europe, where date formats are different, or from you know Unix systems that were using different date time formats. So all of a sudden, there were like entire geographies that they weren't including in their analysis. The analysis might have been appropriate for North America, but if you were trying to get a global perspective, you just dumped the majority of the rest of the world. So it's like you just introduced a tremendous amount of bias into whatever analysis and recommendations that you made. And you may have not even really realized that you were doing it because you were in such a hustle. And you're like, well, we got plenty of data. It wasn't a size of sample problem. The selection bias of where those samples were coming from. We try to make that stuff like really simple for people to go in and say, I want all the data to look like this. And with one click of a button, now all of a sudden it's standardized so that you're you're less likely to dump things because they're frankly too hard to wrangle. You know, we also have examples of capabilities where you can just like what we call do programming by example, where you can say, I want the data to look like this. And you just give us a couple examples of how you want it to look and we'll synthesize the rules that will put the data in that format. These are the types of techniques that we're using to try to ensure that more data can be brought in so that you're able to include more, which will lead to less inherent bias in terms of the data sets that you're starting with and making use of all the data that's available to you. It also kind of ensures the people who don't have malicious intent that they don't forget a step because that's so easy to do. And then it's like a little step down the line is just catastrophic when you end up presenting the results. And it's hard to go back from there. That kind of leads into the next part of our discussion, what are some of the main consequences that you've noticed of bad data processing in a huge crisis situation? Well, before COVID, we got involved through the Centers for Disease Control. And, you know, one of the examples that they talk about was this outbreak of HIV in rural Indiana. So in Austin, Indiana, and this was an article that actually made its way into the New York Times a few years ago. And what was really fascinating about it was, you know, here you had this town of roughly 4,000 people, you know, where they've had zero cases of, of HIV. And all of a sudden, in a very short period of time, you know, now they're looking at, you know, roughly 200 cases. This is the kind of thing that Centers for Disease Control and Prevention monitors very carefully, these hotspots. How do we help local communities respond before this localized threat becomes more of, a, of an epidemic or you know, eventually a pandemic. So, you know, they parachute in and, you know, they're not, they're not just bringing a, a team to work with the community. They're bringing a data team. These are, you know, black belts who are going to go in and they're going to look at, you know, medical record data. They're going to look at police data. They're going to look at demographic data. They're going to look at geospatial data. They're going to look at experiment and assay uh, data, research data, anything that they can get their hands on. You can imagine how the data quality in this situation is incredibly challenging because when you're in a 
conservative community where there's a lot of stigma attached to something like HIV. People don't want to give their information when they're getting into needle exchanges or getting help. They don't want to give their correct birthday. They don't want to give any personally identifiable information that you know could be used to track them in any way, shape, or form. But they still need to get the help. And so you know there's a lot of data that's being provided that is incorrect. And you have to still figure out like, okay, well, what can I glean from this? And how do I clean it up enough that it's still useful in crafting that that overall narrative and then figuring out what kind of you know intervention needs to occur this becomes a real a real challenging problem because that again that data is going to live in lots of different systems some of these communities like have you know pretty antiquated database infrastructure some of it's going to live in spreadsheets or files it's a little bit of a technology history museum of whatever has grown up over the past 20 to 30 years you know, we become an important tool, you know, in that process to get that data to a place where it's it's more useful. And ultimately then spot the trends and understand what's happening to play this forward. The opioid epidemic caused a lot of people to become addicted and then they started seeking other ways to feed that addiction, which led to intravenous drug use, which was not something that they had seen, which then also led to very urban issues. You know, as much as this is a social issue, in some cases, a you know, a political and economic issue, first and foremost, it's a human issue that really revolves around using data to, to both help with the diagnosis and help with the intervention and, and ultimately the prevention. It's really interesting to hear about all your work in this space. I'm looking forward to having more discussions to delve deep into the opioid crisis on this season of Data Femme. So in preparation for that, I do want to get your thoughts on what the best practices are for dealing with people's personal data and how much responsibility do we as data collectors have to encourage people to communicate that data? This push and pull, especially as it relates to social issues, health issues around personally identifiable information and helping people understand the benefits of providing information, not just to them, but to their communities at large. Even in cases where the data is anomalous or where the data needs to be hashed to protect the identities of the individuals involved, like the technology now exists where those things can be done responsibly. And often when you're doing more coarse-grained analysis of trends where you're trying to do some amount of diagnosis broadly, you know, the individual you know, personal information is less crucial. The ability to match and standardize and understand that maybe this is the same person, even if we don't know exactly who they are, that's often you know pretty important. A lot of times the aggregated anonymized data is sufficient to get these large scale programs rolling and to reach into the communities and have a big impact. There's a lot of art and science to that. It's not simply a matter of let's just, you know, kind of hash it, but like there are places where if I'm anonymizing a birthday, maybe there's a field that tracks age and I need to make sure that those things are de-identified consistently because there's a relationship there that's really important. I don't want it to be the actual birthday. I don't want it to be the actual age, but I need to make sure that if they're changed, those things are changed in concert with one another because that might impact the analysis that I'm doing. And so I think, again, this is where the subject matter experts are super important to the process because really thinking through what are the implications of changing things, even for an important reason like personal privacy, things can be altered in different ways to do that anonymization. And it's crucial that that be done very thoughtfully so that you don't corrupt 
the ultimate analysis that you're trying to do, or, or again, bias that analysis in ways that render the data useless. That reminds me of the whole armchair epidemiologist term that arose. <laughs> um, you also mentioned when you were writing about visualization and mapping. Where does DataViz fall within y'all's platform? So we use visualization in the service of understanding consistency, conformity, completeness of data, helping to transform data. We don't focus on end user visualization, you know, dashboarding, reporting. You know, there's a multitude of technologies out there that do that incredibly well. Um, most of the organizations we work with have a broad variety of analytic, algorithmic, and data science platforms that they use that do a lot of the visualization and provide tremendous flexibility in how to present data. We're very maniacally focused on you know the important profiling, preparation, and pipelining that kind of happens before all of that. You know, how do you get to the nice clean rows and columns that ultimately will allow you to do all of the visualization that you want. You know, we think that's a complex problem um, that also requires independence from those downstream consumption tools that will also make use of that data to the extent that most organizations have said, listen, you know, we really want to make sure that we're we're governing that data layer and that we have a consistent version of truth at that data layer, that we're monitoring the quality of that data layer, that we're looking for inherent bias in that data layer. I mean, all the things that we talked about earlier, but then they're kind of saying like, listen, there's so many different interesting ways that you might want to like look at this data, share this data, create algorithms based on this data. We don't want to be overly prescriptive or overly opinionated about what the, those downstream tools are. And so we've really stayed out of that game. Well, before we wrap up over here, I would love to hear you talk about what you are in the game for. What are some of the recent highlights that we should all know about in the data science community? Well, I would just say a couple of things. Our focus historically, you know, had been providing a platform that was very no code in nature, helping people do this work without being structured programmers. But I think one of the things we bumped into over the years is that there were a lot of data engineers and data scientists out there that said, listen, I have some coding skills and I don't want to write all the code, but there are times when writing a little bit of code would be advantageous. And so we've really opened up the platform in the last 12 months to embrace code. If you know some SQL, some JavaScript, some Python, you know, if there are things that you want to do that require writing code, we want that to be part of the service that we provide. I think we recognize that data is a long tail market, which means there's an infinite amount of complexity out there. And we we don't want people to be beholden to our roadmap if they bump into something that is not supported in a more automated way through the interactive visual experience that we provide. So, you know, to the extent that we can tackle some problems with code, we think that's great. And we encourage it to both support the more technical users as well as the collaboration with some of the subject matter experts who are often data-driven professionals, but not necessarily structured programmers. In addition to that, I think with the success that we've seen, it has become a global game and uh, most of the large multinationals that we work with are doing this work all over the world just in this last year. We opened up an engineering center in Bangalore, India. We've opened up additional sales offices in Asia Pacific, including locations like Singapore, where we're seeing huge growth in data and analytics spend. And then just this week, Google is having their next conference, which is their big annual event. And we've also announced that Google, who actually uh, 
OEMs or takes Trifacta to market as Google Cloud Data Prep. So it is a Google branded service that they bring to market. And we've enjoyed a very tight strategic partnership with them over the course of the last four years. And in the spring, we announced a full ELT. So push down support for BigQuery. And we've now announced uh, this week at their conference that we have over 500 customers that have jumped on, on that capability. And we've processed more than 10 trillion rows of data together through the enhancements that we've made. You know, We wanted to get the word out that we've got a whole bunch of customers like Amway and PD Payola and others that are making use of this and you know slashing their consumption costs, but also the time that it takes them to go from raw to refined. And so that's been really exciting. Well, thank you for sharing all of those updates and for having this in-depth discussion with me. We need to do a whole nother episode because I forgot to mention that we are both wildcats from Northwestern. This discussion and producing this episode has given me a lot of insights into where I want to delve in with exploring some of the challenges and working with healthcare data that we discussed and responsibility and security. These are all themes that I feel like will really define a relevant season. For my listeners, don't forget that you can explore all of Trifecta's products and the free trial I mentioned mid-episode and in the show notes. Of course, if you're looking for ways to support the start of this next season of Data Femme, you can go to patreon.com slash datafem and take a look at the tiers. I will be updating some of the perks just because I haven't logged in in a while, but stay tuned for updates about that and for the next episode. You'll never be mine Innocence You'll never be mine